0: So we've been working our way through the the letter to the Romans. So you can open up there again to the letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 1 uh, to 3 lays out the sinfulness of humankind um, and God's righteous wrath, God's uh, rightful judgment, just judgment against uh, us as sinners. Romans one eighteen says that the wrath of God is already being enacted or revealed Uh, From heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then Romans chapter 2 focuses on those who who try to keep the the law, uh, who by their works or their law keeping or their own righteousness try to appease God or um, make up for their sin or accomplish righteousness. Uh, But Romans chapter 3 says, None is righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside and together become worthless. And then Romans chapter three twenty concludes, by the works of the law, uh, no human being will be justified in his sight, um, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So, works-based righteousness ends in hell. That's the bottom line. And that's the kind of righteousness that's available uh, in every other kind of religion in the world. This is the only kind of righteousness that men can try to attain to. I'm going to save myself. That's what we're trying to do. I'm trying to save myself from God and His wrath. I'm trying to, trying to make myself better. I'm trying to be good enough. But then last week we saw that God provides another way of righteousness. Because that's a dead-end street, because none are going to be found righteous by that way, God provides another way in Romans three twenty one. But now, in contrast to man's way of righteousness, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation By his blood to be received by faith. So, this is God's way of righteousness. It's opposite to man's way. Uh, It's not based on rituals or obedience or performance. It's not based on what we can do for God. It's based on what God has done for us. Um, It's a righteousness which we can't earn by our good works, uh, but a righteousness which God gives us based on the works of Christ. And it requires us to take our faith out of ourselves and our goodness and our works and instead put our faith in Jesus Christ completely and all that God has done for us, all that He has done for us on the cross. We saw that God's way of righteousness here um, propitiates His wrath, so it satisfies His justice, His his anger at sin, and it also fulfills the law in verse 31. So it, it fulfills God's righteousness, the righteous requirements of the law. So in other words, God's way of righteousness takes away the penalty for sin and it gains us the reward of perfect obedience. Um, it cancels our debt and it gives us an inheritance among, amongst the righteous. Um, it takes away all that is bad in us and makes us perfectly good. Now, as we consider what justification is and try and understand it, it's important you understand this. Justification doesn't change us at all. There's many other things God does for us in salvation that change us. But justification doesn't change us. It changes my status or my standing before God, my legal standing before God. becomes different, not based on anything I have done or will do or could do or anything I am, but based on what Jesus has done for me. practically speaking we can't really separate what God does for us in adoption or what God does for us in regeneration or union with Christ. I mean these things are all part of a package deal but theologically we should understand these different concepts independently we should understand what each of them accomplishes as distinct gifts as it were because God uses distinct terminology to describe this whole package that gets accomplished in our salvation. And one of the distinct elements of, of it is justification. And, and, and the, the scriptures explain what this justification is, and it's not the same as regeneration or union with Christ or adoption with Christ. Each of these concepts are a are unique, distinct package, gift, that God gives us. So justification has to do with my legal or lawful standing before God. It has nothing to do with a change that occurs in me to my nature or my being. It has to do with a change uh, in how God views me, how God sees me. So from my perspective, what happens in the moment of my justification is that I believe, which means I look away from myself and my goodness and my righteousness and my works and what they can accomplish to give me a right standing before God. I look away from that and instead I look to Jesus Christ and I focus on what He has done, His righteousness, His goodness, His work on the cross uh, uh, as the only sufficient means to give me a right standing before God. So that's what happens in justification from my perspective. From God's perspective, at the moment of justification... God looks away from me and my lack of righteousness and my imperfect attempts at pleasing Him. And instead, He turns and He looks at the perfect righteousness of Christ. He looks at the work of Christ which satisfies His justice. And He reckons that to my account. And so a very beautiful thing is happening in justification. It's not that I'm changing it's that I'm looking away from myself and by faith looking to Jesus Christ to be the the only one sufficient to make me right with God, and God is changing His view of me. He's looking away from me and He's looking at Jesus Christ and His perfect righteousness, and He's counting it to my account. If I could put put this into photography terms, you, you know, I think you've all seen these photographs or maybe you've actually tried to take one where there's a very a narrow depth of field, and and so the the photographer, the camera lens will will focus in on the subject, and and that comes crystal clear into focus, and and then everyone else or everything else just sort of gets blurred into the background. It's not the focal point anymore. You can't really make it out that clearly. That's what's happening in justification. God is putting on a lens, which focuses His attention. Uh, Makes crystal clear the work of Jesus Christ. That's where God is gazing, and we and our works and our righteousness just get blurred into the background as He reckons Christ and His righteousness to our account. So these are the two key concepts that are going to occur in the next paragraph faith or believing, and God reckoning or seeing, and how He sees us as Paul begins to expand on what happens in justification and explain it. And so we'll pick up on this in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. I've called this message, Just as I am. Just as I am. We're going to see three ways that justification changes God's view of me. God sees me just as I am. God sees me despite who I am. God sees me irrespective of who I am. So Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. And as we look through this, look for these key terms. Faith, the opposite of that, works, and counting or reckoning, which occur over and over in this passage. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised. So three ways that God's view of me changes in justification. God accepts me just as I am. Just as I am in verses 3 to 5. There's three major characters that are dealt with in this text. There's Abraham in verses 1 to 5. Then there's David and his deeds in verses 6 to 8. And then there's the Jews and the Gentiles in verses 9 to 12. So as Paul begins to explain this doctrine of justification and defend it, as it were, and illustrate it, as it were, he looks at these three major people, Abraham, David, and then the Jew-Gentile relationship, and how this is accomplished. And the reason he does this is because Abraham and David are two pillars as you look through Old Testament history. Um, How does Matthew's Gospel begin? How does he start his gospel? He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You know, Jesus came in the line of these two great descendants, Abraham because he was the recipient of the Abrahamic covenant. And God said that a seed would come from Abraham um, who would bring God's blessing to all nations. And David was the recipient of the Davidic covenant. God said to David, a seed will come from you, a ruler will come from you who will rule over all nations. And Jesus came then as the son of Abraham and the son of David, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. In other words, if if no man is justified by works, if we are only justified by grace as a gift through faith, then Paul must show that Abraham and David were justified this way too. If he can show that these great pillars were justified in the same way, then he pretty much has dealt with everyone else in Scripture as far as the Old Testament is concerned. And he's just made the claim that God's way of righteousness there in verse 21 is, uh, not, is apart from the law. It's not by the law, but it was a testified um, uh, bed, or the law and the prophets bore witness to it. And so he's got to prove, in a sense, that claim now. He's got to show that the Old Testament does bear witness to this way of righteousness, and no better people to use than Abraham and David. So Abraham is one of the first people in the scripture to be acknowledged as righteous before God. He's the father of the Jewish nation. His his name towers above every other man. as as someone who was well-pleasing to God and experienced God's blessing. He literally is the forefather of the nation. There would be no nation of Israel if it weren't for Abraham, humanly speaking. Ultimately, God sent the Messiah who would bring blessing to all nations in promise to the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 12, I will bless you and I will make your name great and through you all nations on earth will be blessed. So the Jews, to the Jews, Abraham was a very significant person in their history and in God's sight. He was central to all God's promises. But they put it down to personal merit. They believed that Abraham did something right in order to inherit this blessing and this promise. They taught that he was one of the first of seven men who by their merits brought back the Shekinah glory to indwell the tabernacle. So God came back in glory partly due to the righteousness of Abraham. They, they taught that he began serving God at age three, um, that his righteousness was made complete by circumcision and he fulfilled the law in anticipation um, even before it came. There's a Jewish prayer taught by the rabbis that says the following, Manasseh 8, Therefore thou, O Lord, God of the righteous, hast not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against thee, but thou hast appointed repentance for me, who am a sinner. You can see what they accorded to Abraham. The book of Jubilee is probably dating to the 2nd century, um, minimizes the weaknesses of the patriarchs, and it contains this statement, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. So Paul basically takes the strongest Jewish argument for righteousness that is based on works, Abraham, and he dismantles it. And he shows them you've got it all wrong. Abraham himself was only justified by grace through faith not through anything that he did. He begins there by rejecting the premise that Abraham can boast. He says, what shall we say then was gained by Abraham if he had something to boast about in verse 1 and 2? If he was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Abraham doesn't have any means of boasting, and that's what Paul's been saying all along. It's God's way of righteousness stops every mouth. It stops everyone from boasting. Look back in chapter 3, verse 27. Then what has become of our boasting? It is excluded. Why? By by what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. If we are trusting in someone else for our righteousness, then we have no means or reason to boast anymore in ourselves and our own righteousness. That's been God's whole point. So he rejects the premise outright, and now he appeals to Scripture, to the actual examples of Scripture, to prove his point. It says in verse 3, what does the Scripture say? Now he's going to back up his argument. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he's drawing on a whole history and tradition which we some of us might be familiar with, some of us not. But let's just familiarize ourselves then with this where this text comes from. So keep your finger here yeah, in Romans and go back to Genesis 12 where, where God begins the, His redemptive work through Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. Just so you can understand how Paul builds his argument. So this is just after the flood and after Babel, where God scatters the nation, uh, people into all nations, spread all over the earth, and now He's beginning. He's going to take a plan of redemption to take one nation and through this one nation to bring reconciliation to all nations, and He's going to do it through Abraham. So the Lord said to Abraham, Genesis twelve one, Go there from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, he goes on to ratify this in a covenant in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham begins to struggle because uh, God makes him this promise in Genesis chapter twelve. In Genesis chapter fifteen, it's still not fulfilled. He still doesn't have a son. So if you look in Genesis 15, 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Oh Lord, what can you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be you, uh, your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. The number of the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And, it, and he counted it to him as righteousness. There's the, the quote from our text. So I understand there was a promise And then there was a delay. And God didn't fulfill this promise. And Abram began to struggle and saying, How are you going to make me into a great nation when I don't have a single heir from my own body? And one of my servants is going to become my heir. And God takes him out and he says, Believe me and believe what I say. And if you look at the stars, so many will your descendants be. And Abram believes him and it's counted to him as righteousness. And then verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. He said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, and a a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all of them and he cut them in half and he laid each half over against the other, but he didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds came down of the carcass, Abraham drove them away. And, and what proceeds here is an is a, a Old Testament version of cutting a covenant. And God makes him put these animals in two halves, and normally the, both members of the covenant would pass between the halves of these animals to ratify the covenant, the agreement that they had between them. And, and it was almost like them saying, you know, do to me. May I be dead like these animals. May my blood be shed if I'm not faithful to this covenant. But in this case, God doesn't let Abram and him pass through the halves. God alone passes through. In other words, what he indicates to Abram in a way that Abram would have understood is I'm signing this, this covenant. I'm sealing it. I will fulfill it. It's got nothing to depend on you or your faithfulness. And Abram just watches God ratify the covenant and, and be faithful to it. In verse 17, when the sun had gone down and was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river Egypt to the great river of Euphrates. And then goes on to define the land. Now turn over to Genesis chapter 17. It says that when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Verse 1. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make you into a nation, and kings shall come with you. And I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. With your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought from your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And every male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. he has broken my covenant. And so this became the sign of the covenant that God had between Abraham and uh, between God and Abraham. Um, the sign that God will fulfill this promise Abraham still doesn't have a son God's made a promise in Genesis 12 he's ratified it Abraham's believed him Genesis 17 he now gets a seal and sign of the covenant circumcision God's asking him to, to, to to act in faith now and still he's left his own land he's left his people he's left behind still no son And Genesis 21, finally the birth of Isaac, 14 years later, at least, at least 14 years later, before the first tangible, visible signs um, that, um, that God will actually keep this promise. And then in Genesis 22, very next chapter, he calls Abraham to sacrifice the son. Wow. You've waited all these years, 14 plus years, for God to give you the first tangible evidence of this son, he said, would be, become the father of many nations. And then you've just had him and now you have to sacrifice him um, in Genesis 22. And, and Abraham goes and he obeys God because he believed that somehow God would have to bring him back from the dead then. Because God's promises have to be fulfilled through this son because that's what God said. And that's what Hebrews 11 tells us. So what does it say, you know, just to get back to the quoted text here, Abraham believed God, and we see that he was a man of faith. And we see that in the way he left his land, and um, he trusted God, and he was even willing to sacrifice the son of promise. And God counted it to him or reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's what it says, Genesis fifteen six. And that's a key word in Romans, counted or reckoned. occurs in, verse in Romans chapter uh, 4 verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 10, 11. Cursed seven times in Romans. So, this is the key concept he, he wants us to understand. Uh, the New Testament's written in Greek, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. Same concept, that's why it's translated as counted or reckoned in English. The, the Old Testament concept, the Old Testament word here, is often used to describe something that was not true of someone but thought to be true. Did you get that? The Old Testament word was often used of something that was not actually true of someone, but considered to be true. One writer explains the force of a jahil. Frequently used to indicate what a person considered by himself is not or does not have, but is reckoned, held, or regarded to be or to have so just to, to give you an example of this in 1 Samuel 1, 13 Hannah is praying fervently to the Lord and Eli looks at her and she's praying so fervently he thinks that she's drunk but she's not in fact she's she's totally sober just desperately praying same word is used he regarded her or thought that she was drunk or Genesis 38:15 Judah saw Tamar outside the city gate and he thought, reckoned, counted her, considered her a prostitute. Of course, she wasn't that. In fact, she was his daughter-in-law. But he so considered her as a prostitute, he treated her as one. Same word used. So reckon has nothing to do with what a person actually is. That's the key point. In fact, You can reckon someone to be the opposite of what they actually are. You could think they're a prostitute when they're your daughter-in-law. Or you could think they're drunk when they're fervently, righteously praying. In other words, when God reckons us as righteous, it's got nothing to do with who we actually are. It doesn't change who we actually are. What's changing is the way God is reckoning us or thinking about us or seeing us. That's what's changed in um, justification. God reckons us as righteous. So Abraham believed God. That's the first time the word is used in the Bible. And what is the result? Righteousness. A righteousness which comes through God reckoning it to him, not through him earning it. He was. What was he trusting in? He was trusting in the word of God. He was trusting in the promise of God who would bring about this plan of redemption through the promised seed. And so in many ways, Abram was looking forward to this seed that God promised would bring his blessing back, not just to him, but to all nations. He was looking forward to that same seed that we're looking back on. Do you realize that? we look into the same seed. We know his name. Abram didn't. This is what one Old Testament scholar, Walter Kaiser, how he explains it. He says, For Abraham, it meant to believe, it meant to renounce all his human efforts to secure the promise and depend on the same divine person who spoke of the future to work in the present and the future to accomplish what he said he would do. Thus, Abraham possessed the promises of God as yet unrealized when he possessed the God of the promises and his trustworthy word. Abraham was believing in the promise of God to bring about that seed that he promised, and we look back on that, and we believe in that same seed. Okay, you can go back to Romans chapter chapter 4, that background there. So Romans chapter 4 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. So now you can see the principle here. Being counted as righteous is the opposite of earning righteousness. If you earn righteousness, it is your wages, it is your reward. It's not counted as a gift. That would be an insult if you worked hard all, all month and then your boss said to you, "You know, yeah, I'm just giving you a gift. You go, no, you're giving me my rightful due. You're giving me my wages. And that's his point here. It's something that God regards me as having. And we see that in the life of Abraham. It's interesting, um, before this account in Genesis 13, what is Abraham doing? He's, he's trying to help God along by protecting Sarah through, through lying. And what do we see him after uh, the Abrahamic covenant? In Genesis 16, he's trying to help God along with Sarah and Hagar, making a plan to bring about the son. He's not a perfect man. He's not a righteous man in, in, in the human sense, but he is a man of faith. Is his faith, faith perfect? No. But was he trusting in God's promises? Yes. Yes. And that is reckoned to him as righteousness. So God justifies me as I am, just as I am. And then God, to take it a step further, God justifies me despite who I am, in verse 6 to 8. And yeah, looking at David, and really these are the words of David. God justifies me despite who I am. Again, just to remind you, what is the Jewish mindset? Justification or righteousness is something I merit or something I earn. God, I gain righteousness by my works or because of my works. But notice there what he says when he quotes David, just as David also speaks in verse 6. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So he's quoting here from uh, Psalm 32, a psalm of confession, a psalm where David acknowledges his sin before God. If Abraham towered above all the rest as an example of righteousness, someone who was um, righteous before God in his sight, then David must certainly be the next peak or maybe even the higher peak. He's the greatest king of Israel that they've ever had before Christ. He foreshadows the Messiah, and that's why Matthew begins his gospel, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Quite likely, David composed Psalm 32 as a result of um, his adultery with Bathsheba, which also involved hypocrisy and lying and deceiving and having a man murdered and much, much more. And what does David say here? He says, blessed is who? The man whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Not blessed is the man who's righteous by his own merit. Not blessed is the man who's earned and gained righteousness by his goodness. But blessed is the man whose lawless deeds, one who has with a high hand been lawless and disregarded the highest law in the universe, and yet is forgiven. Blessed is the one who willfully rebels against God and yet is forgiven, whose sins are covered, whose shortcomings, whose failings are covered over when someone wanders off the road, and yet God gives them justification anyway and doesn't count their sin against them. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is sometimes hard for us to to understand how does this work that I sin I wonder I'm rebellious I'm lawless but it's not counted to my it's not counted to me it's not reckoned to me Well think about this if you go and eat out at a restaurant and you go and eat out with someone else there's a, a number of ways that once that meal is over things can happen isn't it in terms of settling the debt for all that you've eaten. Uh, you could each pay your own way. We sometimes do that. Um, or otherwise, you could say, I'm going to settle the debt. Bring the bill to me. So you bring the bill to me. Now now think about what's happening there. Um, you're saying you not saying, I've eaten that man's food or that woman's food. You, you haven't. They've eaten it. Right? But the bill... Is coming to you, and you settling it, so that the cost for them having eaten that food is paid for in full. So we understand that concept. There's nothing strange for us to do that, isn't it? This is what it means when you reckon something because this person has eaten in company with you, as it were, and you willing to take responsible for what they, uh, responsibility for what they've eaten. The bill can be reckoned to your account, and if you settle it, it's settled. I mean, it would be ridiculous for them to now pay the bill as well, wouldn't it? Because it's been paid for in full. This is what David is describing here, and we do understand it. God accepts me just as I am. God accepts me despite who I am. The debt of my sin has been settled in full by Jesus Christ. He took responsibility and said, paid in full paid in full. It's not counted against you. God is not going to come to you and now exact the payment for that now because it was paid on the cross. Jesus' righteousness. That's why Paul will go on to say in Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So Christ, God justifies me just as I am, irrespective uh, of Uh, despite who I am, and then lastly, irrespective of who I am. Irrespective of who I am. In verses 9 to 12, he comes up with this Jew and Gentile issue again, this circumcised and uncircumcised issue, issue. So he says there is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now we've just gone back into Genesis, so it should be fresh in your mind. When did God enter into the covenant with him? Genesis 15. When was it signed and sealed that God would fulfill this promise with him? Genesis 15. When did God count him as righteous? Genesis 15. When did he receive the sign of the covenant? Genesis 17. He didn't even have the sign and seal of the covenant then, when God regarded him as righteous. And this is Paul's point. See, because again, the Jews said... It was because of what Abraham did, and circumcision was the act of righteousness that, that, that made him right before God. And Paul says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. Genesis 15 tells us God counted him as righteousness before there was even the sign and seal of circumcision. So again, we understand this well. Paul's drawing on the point from Old Testament history to show them that the Scriptures, they wrong. They've misunderstood the Scriptures. Abram was righteous before he was circumcised because that sign wasn't even given. And we understand this because we have signs as well. A ring is a sign that I'm married, right? We have different symbols that we use. Well, God gave the rainbow as a sign of the Noah covenant. He gave circumcision as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. This ring doesn't make me married. I was married before I ever put this ring on. And if I take this ring off, I'm not unmarried. I'm still married. This is just a reminder of what has happened. It's just a reminder to me and to others that I am in this covenant relationship. That's Paul's point. It doesn't make me married and taking this off doesn't unmarry me. Abraham is the first in a long line of people that was justified how? By faith. Later he put that faith into action by taking up the practice of circumcision. He applied his faith. And we could see that he was a man of faith by what he did. But those things that he did didn't justify him. He was justified in Genesis 15 by faith alone. And then Paul makes a point So he makes a point, listen, Abram was justified by faith, so he became the first in a long line of people who are justified by faith, with or without circumcision, with or without the wedding ring, with or without the sign. That's his point, because it is by faith. Now why does he bring this up? Because when, when God embarked on this plan of redemption... He embarked it in a certain way. He made a promise that through Abraham's seed a son would come and and a nation would come, and ultimately through his seed all nations on earth would be blessed. But somehow in the mind of the Jews that got skewed, and they started to think that they somehow deserved that privileged position, that they somehow were God's special people. And in their mind they were God's covenant people. They worshipped the true God. They had the promises. And all of that is true. And who were the Gentiles? The Gentiles were the idolaters. The Gentiles were the ones who were far off. The the, the Gentiles were the ones who had, no, you know, worship false gods. They were the ones who were characterized by Romans 1. All the idolatry and adultery and homosexuality and evil and corruption that God handed people over to. So Paul brings us in. Because those people that you regarded as so far off, in Ephesians 2 verse 12, Paul could describe them this way, having no hope and without God in the world. Those people that you could be as so far off, God has made a way of righteousness for them too. Not through circumcision, but through faith. Through faith. So that whether you have circumcision or not, whether you do or not, If you believe in the the way that God has provided for you to be righteous through Jesus Christ, he will reckon you as righteous irrespective of your background, irrespective of how lost you were. This is important that you understand. Paul is not just bringing up a Jew-Gentile issue. This represents something that is core to the gospel. What he's saying is, it doesn't matter how far away you have been. It doesn't matter how bad your parents or your ancestors have been. It doesn't matter how much idolatry and adultery is in your ancestry. It doesn't matter what you have done or what anyone has done. God's way of righteousness is for all who believe. There is no one righteous enough to not need God's way of righteousness. And there's no one too sinful to not benefit from God's way of righteousness. That's what Paul's point is. Now, this starts to impact our lives personally. Because you think about this God made a way that He could view us as perfectly righteous, which is not at all dependent on a change in us or our performance. But a change in how he views us in union with Jesus Christ. And that gives us absolute security. Because God changes his view of us despite us, irrespective of us, just as we are. That means nothing we say or do could change that. Absolute security. God wanted us to be absolutely secure in our relationship with Him. Very, very important. We need to turn away from trusting in ourselves and rely wholly on Jesus Christ. That means we are completely secure. Who cares what people think of you? Who cares what people say of you? And the fact that we worry so much about these things shows that we don't think enough about justification by faith. The fact that we're so motivated to impress people, and let's just be honest here, we are, aren't we? We get so delighted when somebody would think well of us. And we do so much to try and impress them in overt ways or subtle ways, because we don't think enough about how unconditionally accepted we are by Jesus Christ. We can talk in general terms about being sinners. We're happy to say we're sinners. Just don't point out my sin. Don't see my sin. Don't see the way that I'm weak and unworthy. We don't want people to come into our home and see me getting a bit short with the kids and angry. We don't want, to see, we don't want people to come into our lives and see my mess truly, practically, personally, up close. Why? because we don't understand our unconditional acceptance before God. The most righteous person in the universe has chosen to see you as righteous in union with Jesus Christ. What else matters? And this should give us great freedom in the church to accept one another just as we are, despite who we are. Great freedom for us to accept when people say, You are acting badly. You're acting sinfully and selfishly. We should be able to hear that and not crumble to pieces because of that. We should be able to go to the cross as a result of that and remind ourselves of our acceptance before God. Let me close with an illustration is to make this practical. Those who are younger are not going to struggle with this illustration. So those of you who are older, or married are going to have to cast your memories back. <laughs> but remember the first time you met somebody that you thought was amazing. Maybe it's somebody you're still in a relationship with. Maybe those of you who are married have forgotten about this. But you know that feeling when your heart quickens and your legs get a little bit Uh, weaker and this person walks into a crowded room but suddenly you don't really notice anyone else you just wow and your attention's there even when it's somewhere else you're kind of in the corner of your eye you're aware this person's in the room do you know what i'm talking about can some of you remember it maybe some of you will have to imagine it God is so enamored with Jesus Christ that when He looks at us, we pale into insignificance and He sees Jesus for us. He sees the work of Christ for us, the goodness of Christ in union with us. That's what justification is. It's God focusing more on Jesus Christ and what He's done for us than on ourselves and what we have or have not done. God is so enamored with, with what Jesus has accomplished, his perfection and his beauty and his glory and his righteousness and his completely finished work on the cross. He's so enamored with that that whenever he looks at you and I who believed in Jesus, he, he can't think of us without focusing on Jesus and what he's done for us. Because Jesus did it for us as we saw it last week. It was personal for you and me. And that means we should do the same. You and I should do the same. We should stop thinking so much about ourselves and our lives and our good and bad works and people and what they think about us. And we should focus where God is focusing. We should be enamored with what God is enamored with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. We know that you delight in Christ. You please with him. He brings a smile to your face. He's beautiful beyond description. Too marvelous for words. Too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing we've ever seen or heard. Who can grasp his infinite wisdom? Who can fathom his matchless love? Father, help us to think about Jesus Christ as much as you do. Help us to love Him like You do. Help us to look to Him every time we're tempted to walk through this world and wonder whether You love us. To look to Him. Every time we're tempted to boast in ourselves and try and make much of ourselves, help us to look to Him. Lord, every time we get to the end of ourselves and want to give up because we've blown it again, help us to look to Him. Help us to look to Him. Help us to think about Him much more than we think about anyone else or even ourselves. Please, Lord, we know that you have sent your Spirit and given us the Spirit of Christ to dwell in us, to show us your glory in his face. Please show us him, we pray. Amen.